We have two of our favorite topics this morning on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We have HB6 and Jim Jordan. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. Good stuff to talk about on a Thursday. Feels like we always have good stuff to talk about on Thursdays. Yeah, it's it's a yeah, loaded, news just... loaded bunch of news that came uh, up on Wednesday. Yeah, it, this is always how the news cycle goes, you know? It's like everyone's working on stuff, and then it just bottlenecks on Thursday. <laughs> and it Ebbs keeps and me up late, because I have to do stuff <laughs> way beyond when I want to be working, as all of you were too. All right, let's get going. How far did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's utility chief, Sam Randazzo, go to protect First Energy, the utility that admitted paying him millions of dollars in bribes, according to some text messages that were just released this week. Laura Johnston, this was a pretty big story. Jeremy Pelzer broke. This document was sitting there loaded with some very inflammatory information. And once again, it makes me wonder, when will Chuck Jones face the court music? Well, Chuck Jones and, <clears throat> sorry, Sam Randazzo, that you're just wondering why is this guy not charged yet? But Randazzo was the chairman of the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio. And basically, these text messages from Chuck Jones make it pretty clear that he overruled the commissioner and staff on the PUCO to make sure that First Energy was taken care of. According to this text message, he, quote, burned the final report of the PUCO audit, which was looking into a First Energy customer charge that the Ohio Supreme Court ended up overturning because the PUCO had improperly approved it. And this is from a March 2020 text from First Energy CEO Chuck Jones to the former senior vice president, Dennis Check, also not charged yet. But these texts were acquired and released Wednesday by the Ohio Consumers Council that asked the PUCO to subpoena them because the PUCO has subpoena power. We don't know what that audit said that we hope that the Consumers Council is going to try get that next. Yeah. And it, it does kind of fill in the blank about what Chuck Jones was talking about in his emails that had been or text messages that came out earlier where he said people down at the PUCO don't know if Chuck Jones is working for us or working for them. This makes work, it, or Randazzo. it makes yeah. clear that Randazzo was really working for First Energy and they paid him millions of dollars to do it. It's um, it's a kind of a staggering thing. I, th this gets back, though, to some of the talk about HB6, you know, we've, we've talked about how Bill Seitz, the legislator, has continuously stood behind this law. He has sent me several emails of late saying, I don't know what I'm talking about. It was a good law. It was a good law. And I sent him notes back saying, don't you get all of Ohio knows how corrupt this law was? Why not abolish it and pass the elements you believe in with proper hearings and in good faith? He just doesn't see it. I mean, I guess things in Columbus are done in such horrible fashion that they that they don't they can no longer see what normal people see that that this was forged in the most corrupt way possible. Yeah. Th these text messages are staggering. The head Mike DeWine's head of the PUCO, his guy that he picked despite people objecting, saying, "Hey, he's in the pocket of the utilities," was was basically throwing out the commission's recommendations to protect the utility. And, you know, remember, when Sam Randazzo left, 
he sent a note to Mike DeWine boasting about all the good work they did together. Is this what he was referring to? Protecting First Energy, enriching First Energy, giving them extra profits off the backs of Ohioans? Is this what he's talking about? And this isn't just one part of this is like three different things that we know about in one text message that he's talking about, about the decoupling amount of money that allowed First Energy collect hundreds of millions of dollars more from ratepayers. That was part of HB6. And then the significant excessive earnings test that was meant to prevent utilities like First Energy from making huge profits. And in 2019, lawmakers changed that calculation so that First Energy subsidiaries could make more money. And then this audit that apparently the interim audit had raised some questions about First Energy. We never saw the final report because it somehow got quote unquote burned. Yeah, And you just wonder when the mounting evidence of the horrifying scale of this scam would convince somebody like Bill Seitz to say, okay, okay, we need to abolish this entire law and right. start over. Instead, because, uh, he listens to this, apparently. <laughs> He'll send me a note again, tell me, I don't know what I'm talking about. Because, this is good for Ohio. And you could say, you know, like, obviously, we've had people charged, we've had people found guilty, parts of HB6 have been repealed, but Jeremy had a story a couple weeks ago about the fact that we're paying, you know, millions and millions of dollars for nuclear, or sorry, for plants in Indiana and Southern Ohio to keep that's still part of HB6 that's still going. Like We're still getting bled dry from this law. Well, and that's what Seitz is arguing is a good law. And my response was, then abolish HB6 in good faith to the citizens of Ohio and propose that as a standalone bill, have hearings, take testimony, show Ohio it's legitimate, instead of sending me notes. You know, do the right thing. This law was corrupt. Get rid of it. Good stuff by Jeremy Pelzer. Check it out on cleveland.com. You are listening to This Week in the CLE. Why was Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan so consternated during an appearance before the House Rules Committee Wednesday involving the January 6th insurrection provoked by then-President Donald Trump? So, Jordan, we haven't talked about Jim Jordan in a while. He's kind of kept a lower profile of late. He usually is grabbing headlines left and right. He kind of recovered from his absence in one fell swoop. And I have to say, Jim Jordan's resting face is consternation. But but anyway, uh, yeah. <laughs> and he is, and he proved yesterday yet again that he is a master at hemming and hawing. He was before the House Rules Committee yesterday. They were talking about getting a contempt resolution for Trump provocateur Steve Bannon, and they're going to vote on that contempt measure today. By the way, but um, he was asked. Jordan was asked by the uh, chair of the committee. Uh, Jim McGovern, who's a Democrat out of Massachusetts, did you talk to President Trump after the attack? Jordan's like, I may have talked to him before. I I, I don't know. And they kept pressing him and pressing him and he kept deflecting. He said at one point, he says, well, you know, you're focusing on Trump, not the failures of the Capitol security team. And where was the National Guard that day, Mr. McGovern? So, yeah, he he loves to, like, deflect. And, you know, he also talked about the unsecured border, anything to really avoid answering the question. Um, when he was asked, it, go ahead. Go ahead. It's just amazing to me that, that he's standing like that because Donald Trump was provoking a coup. And... That, think about that. The president of the United States provoking a coup 
at Jim Jordan's offices and he still stands there and acts like it's no big deal and we should look elsewhere. It boggles the mind. And when he was directly asked by McGovern, did you coordinate the January 6th effort with Trump? Jordan, quote, I have no idea what you're talking about, unquote. So, I mean, but I watched CNN this morning. They rolled the tape on like a couple of uh, interviews by Fox News and CNN in mid-July where he admitted talking to Trump that day after a few questions, after he was pressed. He said, oh, yeah, I talked to him that day. I probably talked to him several times that day. I really don't remember. So, yeah. (laughs) You have to wonder why Trump is working so hard to keep the papers from that day protected. He's trying to claim executive privilege, which has never been granted to a former president. Joe Biden has said, no, 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 let, let give him up. Give him up to the investigative committee. And Trump has gone to court. So it's kind of like his taxes must be pretty bad stuff in there that he doesn't want America to see. Well, and Jim Jordan. You're listening oh, to this. No, just I just wanted to add, I, Jordan ahead. is acting like a cornered animal, basically. I think. (laughs) Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is the thought behind legislation that passed the Ohio Senate this week to prevent police from taking guns from people attending a riot? Leila Tassi, this law is strange for several reasons, one having to do with gun shops being declared essential businesses. But (laughs) the idea that police couldn't take guns away from people at riots, I'm, I'm presuming that if somebody's at a riot and they start aiming the gun at people, they could take it away. What is the purpose of this? The bill's sponsor, Republican Tim Schaefer from Lancaster, said it stems from the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in 2005, when apparently law enforcement confiscated firearms from New Orleans residents. And after that happened, the Louisiana legislature passed a bill prohibiting the seizure of firearms during a state of civil disorder. So so Schaefer says that this bill recognizes Ohioans' natural right to, to self-defense. It makes state residents safer. He said that the, the bill doesn't impose any new gun rights, but just clarifies that people can't have their Second Amendment rights taken away. I mean, obviously, Democrats are, are upset. They're concerned about letting people bring guns to potentially dangerous, volatile situations where law enforcement is trying to maintain security. So I don't know. Yeah, I guess it's so- inspired by this... <laughs> Hurricane Katrina. (laughs) So I'm but I'm presuming that, you know, back when we had a KKK rally in Cleveland during the the Mike White Merrill years, um, he built up a a fenced area that you couldn't get through with anything dangerous because they were trying to stop violence from coming because it was so fiery. When the Republican National Convention was here, the downtown zone was walled off by huge fences and you couldn't get in there with guns or knives or things. So I'm presuming if there's a big protest and the city wanted to wall that off so nobody could bring in guns, they'd still have the right to do that, right? I don't know. I mean, is that is that contemplated here? It's, it sounds to me that it's pretty cut and dry that that no, that wouldn't be allowed anymore. Um, I mean, you can't. Isn't that the point of this bill is to yeah, say that I, law enforcement can't do that anymore? I, I can't imagine that. I mean, that would be like the, the them trying to say you can't stop people from carrying guns on airplanes. I mean, I, I can't imagine that's, that this. I'm would... sure that's coming. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just I can't imagine this would stand up to any kind of challenge. I mean, you're allowed to have a concealed carry weapon. You're allowed to take it into a lot of places. But there's very specific things in the law that you can't do with that. And and police and cities do have the right during 
unrest to set up zones that that you can't enter if you go in with a gun. They're not taking away the gun. They're just saying you can't come in with a gun. The other part of it is that they want to declare gun shops essential businesses during the pandemic. Some states, not Ohio, closed gun shops. And so even though Mike DeWine did not close them, they're saying you no future governor could close a gun shop. A gun shop is an essential business. I mean, you think about grocery stores and you think about pharmacies, you know, where it's life-saving stuff. A gun store is an essential business? You know what? I, I feel like this entire story really points to some some serious cultural differences at play in Ohio because I, I can't wrap my, my mind around why why one would consider a gun shop an essential business. But, you know, the Senate Republicans also recently passed Senate Bill 156, which protects the rights of, of knife owners. I didn't even know that was a thing, you know, that <laughs> this, this bill would this would give someone the right to sue a local government for banning knives. It, that there, There's a group called Knife Rights that advocates for the right the rights of knife owners. I mean, are we talking about people who, who wear a knife in a holster on their hip or something like Crocodile Dundee? I don't know. Like there are parts of Ohio that are like a foreign land to me. And I just don't understand what cultural influences would give rise to these two bills. <laughs> and because of gerrymandering, those parts of Ohio are our overlords. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did Cleveland Clinic employees who were given counterfeit masks by the hospital system end up coming down with COVID-19? Laura Johnston, how could this have happened? Well, yeah, they some of them did. And this happened with thousands and thousands of counterfeit N95 masks, which were supposed to be official 3M masks, but this was a $1.8 million sale of more than 400,000 masks to the Cleveland Clinic. And the clinic issued more than 50,000 of these to the healthcare workers before learning they were fake. And you read the story and you're like, what is a fake mask? But N95 have to pass certain standards. They they want them to keep out about, I think, you know, 95% of the of airborne particles. And these didn't fit right. They smelled funny. And it turns out they were from a completely counterfeit company that was just stamping 3M on the masks and selling them, which is really dangerous to these poor healthcare workers. Well, and and according to our story, because they were working in high risk areas, uh, they contracted COVID. You can't say they got it through the mask, but they were working with infectious patients. Leila Tassi, you, you, you're married to a nurse uh, who attended to lots of patients. This must scare you. Of course. Everything scares me right now. <laughs> <laughs> Everything. I mean, thankfully, my husband is vaccinated. He's not, you know, one of those you know, holdouts in the I don't understand why healthcare workers are resisting the vaccine. They're in they're in the most dangerous frontline position right now. Uh, but luckily, my husband is vaccinated and he's in line for the booster at some points very soon. So luckily, we have not been affected by this counterfeit issue. But this is it, you're right. It's it's completely scary. And you think about what kind of company was like, yep, we'll just make fake masks and pass them on to healthcare companies. And this wasn't just the clinic. This was in Pennsylvania. Our- a couple other places as well. And we're talking of hundreds of thousands of masks. And you're right. The clinic apparently didn't tell the federal authorities who got sick or how, but it was in the filing that John Coniglia wrote about. So maybe we'll find out more as this case progresses. Yeah, scary stuff. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
Why are some advocates for the elderly criticizing a bill in the Ohio legislature that would allow people to put cameras in the rooms of relatives in nursing homes? Lisa Garvin, this is why I love advocates. They see the holes in the law that we might otherwise not. They're making some very good points here. They really are. Um, Making those points is Paula Muller. She is the co-founder and leader of a group called Elderly Advocates. And this bill is Senate Bill 58. It's called Esther's Law after a woman who was abused in a nursing home and their family put a camera in there um, just to, to monitor and, and saw the abuse on the camera. But uh, Mueller was saying that they should expand this to assisted living facilities as well because they are also state regulated entities. And that's a good idea, you know, that, that they didn't think of. But then the sponsor of the bill is Senator Nikki Antonio. She's a Democrat from Lakewood. And she just wanted to focus just on nursing homes, she said, just to get this bill over the goal line. And she's open to expanding it to assisted living facilities. But I found it interesting that Mueller pointed up there's no guidance around permission forms. So if cameras are to be placed in rooms, there's a permission form that has to be filled out and, you know, who monitors the camera and who gets to see the feed and all that kind of thing. But it Apparently in Ohio, there will be no standard form. In Minnesota, which has a similar law, they have a standard form that every nursing facility fills out the same one. In Ohio, it's left up to the facility to create a form and get it to the residents in a, you know, in a, in a reasonable manner of time. Um, I, I think that's a good point she makes. I think there should be a standardized form. And she was also worried about nursing homes not getting these forms to residents in a timely manner. So, I mean, I think she brings up some very good points. Yeah, the idea that there's nothing in the law that forces the nursing home to provide those forms on demand, basically, is it that's a bad part of the law because the nursing homes the nursing home lobby is very powerful and they'll play games they played games during the pandemic so it needs to be very specific that those forms must be available you know around the clock or eight hours a day on demand and if they're not available on demand then the cameras can be placed without them or something but we'll have to see if they update the bill good points though to come out of that i'm glad they spoke up you're listening to this week in the cle What are the lingering questions that the Cuyahoga County Council members have as they get near to approving a deal worth hundreds of millions of dollars to the Cleveland Guardians for upgrading Progressive Field? Layla Tassi, Caitlin Durbin's story on this had a stirring piece where the head of the Gateway Development Corporation basically said in as naked a fashion as I've ever seen that we're completely hostage to the teams, that he tried to negotiate taxpayer protections and he couldn't because unless you're willing to lose the team, you have zero leverage. Yes, it was sounded so fatalistic. So basically two thirds of the $435 million stadium project will be funded by public sources and the government agencies that are involved in this would be on the hook for capital improvements. And for the county's part, that funding will come primarily from the bed tax and sin tax, in addition to some general fund contributions. But council members during a committee of the whole meeting Tuesday were wondering, well, what happens if those tax streams don't produce the way we expect them to? Or what if the capital repairs exceed what's been budgeted for them? And Ken Silliman, the chair of the ballpark landlord Gateway Economic Development Corporation, offered almost no comfort on that answer. He told them that the public would still be responsible for making up the difference and 
you know, if not, they would risk defaulting on the lease. And he said, quote, the only way it gets out of default is if money comes from somewhere, someone to make it up. And he also noted that the nonprofit, you know, that Gateway has no independent funding sources. Yikes. <laughs> I mean, well, the current lease requires the team to contribute to c capital repairs for projects up to $500,000. But Silliman basically said Gateway had no leverage in negotiations with the team to get them to pick up the cost of some of the repairs this time, the capital repairs sometime, you know, this time around. So, I mean, it, yeah, like it you said, like he almost said, blackmail. Yeah. It's like you, you, you do everything we say or we'll leave. We'll take the team and you'll be blamed forevermore for losing the beloved team. It's uh, I, I that nobody had said that before yesterday. You know, there was hints that, you know, well, we, we don't want to lose the team. We want to be good partners. But he said, look, I tried to protect the taxpayers. I tried to negotiate that, but we have no leverage. And so I couldn't do it. Uh, I, we should point out that in the past, when Gateway has had no money, uh, all uh, both the Cavs and the uh, then Indians did do repairs on their dime. The, the bills mounted up, and then they they settled it and cleaned it up. So that the, there is a there has been a willingness in the past of the teams to to spend some money when that, it was dire. Wasn't that baked into the contract? I mean, wasn't that that was not part all of, of it? The deal. Not, not all of it. They ended up eating eating some of it they never I'm, I'm pretty sure i'm saying this right they were never made completely whole for everything that the previous lease um set up for for the public to pay i mean the public paid a lot don't get me wrong it was a, a it was a sweetheart deal this is even more of a sweetheart deal and i i just i i appreciate ken Silliman for sitting at the table and answering the question honestly and not spinning it somehow I mean, he told them the truth there is some opposition to this. The Progressive Caucus is making noise about how this is rushing too fast. And is it really right to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on something like this when Cleveland has so many other needs? It'll be interesting to see if that develops, especially when it gets to the city council side oh, for of the sure. approval. Yeah, I think that city council members, they're all up for re-election and they certainly don't want to look like they're rubber stamping something so potentially controversial as this when you know, their their constituents are are watching right now and, and have the power to vote them out <laughs> on account well, of and it. If, and if they don't get it done this year, you're going to you could have a, a very different composition of council with a lot more opposition after January 1st. So it'll be, be interesting to see. I, I appreciate the county council for giving this some due diligence and asking the good questions. This is the way it, the process should work. And man, some of the answers are not what I expected. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is Neighbor to Neighbor, a partnership announced Wednesday, and how much money is going into it? Laura Johnston, it's all about broadband, right? It is all about broadband, which is really good because we need to bridge this digital divide in Cleveland. But Rocket Community Fund is the philanthropical arm of Rocket Mortgage and the other Dan Gilbert companies. And it's working with the Cleveland Foundation to donate a combined $1.35 million to this program. They're going to have 50 people employed in door-to-door -door canvassing. That means they're going to go to five area like neighborhoods working with the community development corporations and help distribute information and talk with residents to figure out what they need and how they can help. I mean, there are existing programs and they want to help them get signed up for stuff like the Emergency Broadband Benefit, which is a federal program that provides a monthly $50 discount on internet access, as well as a $100 subsidy for a computer. And this is a big deal. About a third of Cleveland homes expect to qualify for that program. 
And right now, more than 30% of the city lacks broadband of any type. If you take out cell phone plans and the wi- you know wireless that way, then we're talking about 46% of Cleveland households don't have internet access. Wow. All right. A good program. It'd be good to see if they, they get it. We got lots of broadband projects going on right now, including $20 million set aside by Cleveland City Council for something <laughs> we have no idea what it is. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. With less than three months left in office, Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson suddenly seems like he is in one rush to lock up spending of the big stimulus check Cleveland received from the federal government many months ago. What's his new plan for $95 million of it? Leila Tassi, I almost get the impression that Jackson thought Kevin Kelly would be the next mayor and he would carry out the wishes that they had talked about. But now he might recognize Kelly... has a good chance of not being the next mayor and he doesn't want to leave this in the hands of Justin Bibb to spend. I think that's exactly, well, that, that was, that was my thoughts. Exactly. That maybe he thinks like if he can lay out the roadmap that Justin Bibb would see the way if he ends up getting elected. So yeah, late Wednesday, Jackson surprised us again with the release of, of a detailed plan for spending this $95 million chunk of, of the American rescue plan money on community development, economic development, demolition, and preserving existing housing stock. And so for community development, it's it's a $44.5 million pot split among three categories, um, you know, lending programs, grant programs, and and uh, sixteen million on strategic development. So, so the you know the programs involve re- repairs, rehabs, purchases to single family and multi you know family homes. The grant programs are targeted toward housing development, emergency rental assistance, storefront improvements, appraisal interventions, and and emergency food assistance. And then about five million dollars is set aside for lead safe housing grants. And then in the economic development pot, it's $25.5 million, and that includes lending pools for, for mixed-use real estate, small businesses, and a contractor line of credit program. And the plan also calls for $10 million for Shaker Square reimagining. And there's been a lot of coverage uh, over the past couple of years of, you know, what's going to become of Shaker Square, which is aging and in need of this new concept. And 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 now is in receivership, right? Isn't that what the latest That's correct. Shaker Square? Yes. Yeah, and it's kind of a mystery what they're doing there. I think we're going to be talking about the Shaker Square part of this more tomorrow and in the week ahead. I, I mean, it, it's look, Shaker Square, I, in my time here, I think it's gone through two renovations, and now it's going to be this third. you got to start to wonder, is this just a relic of the past that we should let go of? Because it doesn't seem to thrive. But I think I think we need more information about what the plan is. Let me ask you, though. City council, a, a, a decent portion of city council has made clear that they want to drive the bus on stimulus, that they're very dissatisfied with the lack of action and the lack of transparency by both Jackson and the council president, Kevin Kelly, who's running for mayor. So, so they've kind of taken the reins. And there are some that keep asking questions about why are we moving on the mayor's plan before right. we know what our plan is? And so this is kind of a slap in their face, right? To to as they're having their meetings and discussing it, to weigh in with sixteen tons of here's how we're spending the money. I, I, do you think that's going to go over well with the council members that have oh, been no. working 
Yeah. I don't think so at all. I think it's it's going to go over very poorly. And and I think um yeah, if they're insulted by this, they they have a right to be. They they set this timeline. They're working very diligently toward it. November 1st is is the deadline that they chose where they're going to present their own priorities and then they are open to reconciling those with what the mayor has put on his wish list. But, you know, Kevin Kelly, their their council president, uh has not he has not been really a very, um, you know, he hasn't he hasn't been participating in good faith in this. He gets up in the middle of a meeting, half hour into a two hour meeting, and leaves. Uh, that's happened twice, and um, and and it told them, you know, we're not going to stop the legislation from working its way through council while you guys have this conversation. And I think they have a right to feel insulted by that. Wouldn't it have made much more sense if if you if you're the mayor and you want this? to go through, that you've put thought into it, then you really have come up with a plan. Wouldn't it have made more sense to go to the council as they're having these conversations and say, hey, we'd like to inject some other ideas into this conversation. We've been working on this for a while. And here in community development and economic development, here are some of the things we're thinking. Could we talk about that? And have a general work session where they chat about it, maybe massage it. But to just go out on a Wednesday night and announce, here's how we're spending the money. I I just, given the conversation that's going on in council, given that it's an election year, given that Jackson is such a lame duck, what's the point? You're, You're slapping them in the face in such a way that they're probably not going to do it. Yeah. You know, the, the administration and Kevin Kelly have both made the point that that the council was given the chance at the front end of this process to get put forward their suggestions and that those were rolled into what we're seeing here now somehow. But no, after they these ideas were developed, they weren't brought back to council for further discussion and workshopping and the kinds of conversations that they're having now in those working groups. Um, they, they simply are being rolled out at press conferences <laughs> or, well, or what, at, at, a, at a 5 p.m. in a 5 p.m. press release <laughs> last but, night. But whatever had happened before, you know what's happening right now. The council is engaged in this discussion. Exactly. So yeah, it, you're it's, right. it's out of sync. I, I mean, it's almost like you're throwing it out there with plans for it to fail. I, I, unless you think Kevin Kelly has the juice as council president to ram it through. But that does not seem all that evident unless maybe you can show that you're going to take care of enough council member wards that you can get the votes. I don't know. Very strange. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Hot discussion for a Thursday. we got a couple of topics we didn't get to today. We'll get to them tomorrow. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thank you for listening to this podcast. <laughs>